There's a question on uh, the precept of drinking. May I ask for your advice on how to stop drinking? I understand it is against the precepts and also for mindfulness development and, of course, health. Yet I still struggle with this issue. Please kindly address this issue to both casual and social drinkers and heavy drinkers. Well, there seems to be some people who have the genetic disposition to be addicted very easily. That's, I think, the science that we have now. So some people have considerable problems with issues around drinking, which are, which really need, uh, I think, professional guidance. Um, and I don't, I don't have that experience. Certainly, I've read a bit about that. I, I, I drank as a student and. I did marijuana, LSD, which is, was sort of required learning in the 70s. And, uh, but I, I never really got addicted to it, and I just saw it, it made me stupid. <laughs> so, and it felt awful and uh, interesting when I, like the, f I, w I was, like with drinking, it was social. This is, this is what you did as a young man and what you did at university to use up your, your student loan and things like that. <laughs> um, but it, it really didn't produce any good results. It just made me miserable, actually. It didn't produce any sense of self-respect. Lowered my IQ by many, many points. Um, cost a lot of money and was an embarrassment to my friends. So tick off all the foolishness of it. Um, and then with other drugs, for, you know, at first with other drugs, I, I tried them as a kind of experiment in consciousness. And certainly psychedelics were very interesting, but they, they gave no real barami. So also they became just another habit. And I just preferred clarity. <laughs> Simple, right? Um, so I suppose, well, first of all, uh, in terms of the, the five precepts, that's a determination you, you, you make very clearly to yourself. And you make it, you try to make it clear to someone you respect. So if one wants to work with one of the precepts, say the fifth precept, and one takes drugs or alcohol, you, you have to kind of make it your project, don't you? You can't just say, I'm a bad person for drinking. You have to make a real aditana. Okay, this is a serious project. It's, it's, it's really something that I'm having difficulty getting around. So you can't just dismiss it. You have to, you have to take it on. So how might, you, how might you take that on? Well, classically, uh, if if it is an addiction issue, there might be issues of uh, child abuse or uh, there's the genetic disposition. So then you have to really seek out some kind of counseling to make conscious the whole problem. 
with drinking and I, I don't have those skills. And certainly I find, because there's a lot of um, therapeutic work in the West around these issues, I have friends who are in the fields of psychology and counseling. If I find someone is, is really caught up in these ways where the normal practices of mindfulness aren't working, then I, I tell them, I, I can't, I don't know how to do this, but I do have a friend, and I advise them to take counseling. So, you know, awareness practice will work when there's a certain level of parami, a certain strength, uh, a certain uh, social support, but it, it doesn't work for everyone. Um, so I've had situations where we've had monks who have had really troubled childhoods and the bhavana is just not working. So I, I, you know, I try to find a good therapist. I mean, it's very, very rare, but I've done it a few times and get them to go to therapy and, and become conscious of what is this problem. Um, so there's that kind of more extreme. And then all the, the different... Uh, support groups you have like Al-Anon and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and all those, those are, they have a lot of experience, right? Um, so, so that is not, you know, not to think that, that meditation is going to work for everyone. That's what we thought when we went to England. We thought, oh yeah, meditation will work for everyone, just meditate. And then every now and then we, some person would be having a schizophrenic breakdown and meditating, you know, and what they were doing is actually they're just going deeper into the psychosis through the meditation. They said, "Oh, that just, this isn't working very well." And classically, they thought they were getting enlightened. So I had one Anagarika who who uh, thought he was going to get enlightened on Thursday. I said, "Oh, okay," and it was the onset of schizophrenia. Right? So. Um, you know, there are mental, mental conditions that, that actually, in modern culture now, there are very good supports. It's really, you know, it's a very good time for developing the mind in all kinds of ways. So there's that. Um, but classically, if one then has the sort of equipment to deal with this, if there isn't so, some kind of hidden damage which one is dealing with, because if there's hidden damage from childhood, and one can't be conscious of it, then you have to make that conscious first, right? So in, in, in using the fifth precept, it's, um, the best is like 100%. You know, people say, well, as long as I don't get drunk. Mm, yeah, you know what? We have this problem with the people from Quebec. People from Quebec are French. French like wine, right? And, and, you know, we should have, I mean, wine at that, I don't get drunk. I don't know. I haven't seen you at the dinner table. <laughs> so that, that lack of definition is up to each individual, right? Because the precepts are for each of us to, to use for reflection. So... It's not, you know, we don't, we don't really have the word evil. I know sometimes the word bop in Thai gets translated as evil, but we don't really have that. We have more dependent origination, it, it, so 
with drunkenness as condition, you get these results, right? Uh, and it's not, we don't have the idea that it's evil, but it just gives bad results. So if one then chooses to have a kind of fuzzy line fifth precept, you know, uh, I don't take alcohol except with Uncle Louie. <laughs> or I don't do alcohol except Beaujolais or whatever it is, right? That, that, is, that is quite dangerous because that puts you in a position of, of, well, it's okay, it's okay. So if one is actually having difficulties with drinking, then one should make a very strict, just no way. Just 100%, don't even touch the stuff. Now that, that creates a definition for you, but also for the society. So when someone says to you, oh, come on, let's just, let's do a toast to granny. May she be well and happy, and she liked vodka, <laughs> or whatever. She was Russian. Um, then, then you're drawn into a, in a social situation to participate. But if you just say, you know, uh, I don't do alcohol, I keep the five precepts, you can, as a Buddhist, you can say that in Thailand. Or you can just say, I'm religious. And, oh, you're one of those, okay, I'm religious. Which is good. Because then it creates, you know, okay, this person's a bit creepy, but anyway, that's what they do. They don't leave you alone. You know, they leave you alone. But if it's negotiable, if it's negotiable, you, you, you know, you want to be a nice person, and then you're on the floor <laughs> before you even know it. So the best policy is like total 100% abstinence, right? Um, and, and then... Your, your, your friendships will change. One of the things you f I think we all find, when we come to Dhamma, our friendships change. Those people who are heedless and into wrong speech and into partying, you know, whatever people do, uh, you kind of, that's too coarse. And I don't want to go there. And you want, you want Kalyanamitta. You want people who who you can talk Dhamma to, that encourage you on the precepts and so on and so forth. So you, you lose a lot of friends. <laughs> but it's probably okay. Because then you make some new friends. So, so you have to, in, in terms of, of developing um, that fifth precept, you've got to be really careful of your friendships. You know, if you're hanging out with, with people who drink a lot, well, what's going to happen? Okay? So what happens if, if in the family there is drinking and, and, and so on, then just got to set a really, really tight standard and say, no, I don't do that. I, no, I don't. 100%. No, it's not negotiable. Um, now, with all addictions or, or habits, you, it's easy enough to make an aditana. So, you know, the joke is New Year's resolutions, right? So... Mm -hmm. Do you make New Year's resolutions in Thailand? Do you have that mindset? You know, New Year's comes around, and you think, I'm, I'm not going to do this, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to have more exercise and not eat so much cake or whatever people do. <laughs> and of course, well, well what you do is, is you, you, you make an aditana, and when you make an aditana, you feel great. Because you, you think you've already done it. That's why it feels so great. So from January 1st, you know, let's say... You, 
you you eat uh, too many um, what's too much durian <laughs> right no one likes you anymore <laughs> and then you make an aditana Jennifer some I'm only going to have one piece of durian a month, right? That makes you feel good, right? You haven't done it yet. <laughs> you haven't even started yet, right? But, oh, yeah, I'm a good, I'm a good durian letter goer. I'm really gangmak. So that's inspiration. But then the reality comes, and the durian comes around, or the booze, or the grass, or whatever, and that, that of course, is the test. Right? And then the mind starts to negotiate. Right? It says, wow, happening. Ah, come on, it's, it's Uncle Louie. He likes durian and vodka. <laughs> uh, so you have, to, you have to make the aditana. It's very helpful to make an aditana to someone you really respect. Right? Don't make it with your drinking buddy. <laughs> or your durian buddy, right? So you make it, if you want to make it serious, you have to make it very strong in the mind, so you have to make it to a kuba ajan, an elder, someone who you really, really respect. And, and that, that makes the aditana stronger. Right? So now you're serious. Now you're serious about it. It's not, it's not just, yeah, I, you know, a kind of frivolous thing. So, so aditana then is intention, and intention is, is what makes you more mindful of the habit. So when the habit comes up, then hopefully you will not do that. But of course you will do it. This is the nature of, of habits and addiction. Now then, when, if, you're, if you're sincere, then you'll feel hiryotapa. And hiryotapa is a sense of conscience now. And, and what you should do with that hiriotapa is is take it take it take it to your teacher and confess and redo the aditana right reaffirm the aditana now you'll be embarrassed at going to your teacher if you've if you've blown it on the second day <laughs> if you've only lasted two days you feel quite embarrassed so maybe you'll take, say to a friend, no, no, you have to go to the person who you really respect and, and, and that's going to help you with this. Then also you have to take the, the hiriotapa, the sense of remorse and regret. If you're serious, then you should have a strong sense of regret, right? If you're not serious, you'll just, you know, then you'll never get out of it. Then you have to take that hiriotapa and feel Feel the pain of your own disappointment. Feel how you've disappointed your teacher, maybe, or, or someone in your family, and really feel how awful that is. When you feel an awful result, and I think I spoke about this earlier. Was it here or in the interviews? I forget. But when you... Typically what happens, when you make a mistake and you feel hiriotapa, what people do is then they think hateful thoughts about themselves. I'm horrible, I'm horrible, I'm horrible, I'm horrible, bad monk, bad monk. More durian, please. What happens is you don't put skill into the mind, you put hatred in the mind. What is skill? Well, skill is feeling, you know, I've been talking about Ida Pachayata, right? This being 
there is that. When this arises, that arises. It's not being, this is not. When there's not this, there's not that. Okay, so that's the basic law. So if you feel hiriotapa, then you don't go to the thoughts, you go to the actual emotional tone. And that is not nice. It's not nice. So then you want to hate yourself, but that's not feeling it. Actually, hating yourself feels nice. This is the perversion, you know? Hating yourself feels good. Oh, you're terrible, Viradhamma, you're terrible, you're terrible. But that's not mindfulness, that's ego. And that will just take you to the same cycle. So then you go to the, okay, what, is, what does it feel like to have failed? What does it feel like to, to kind of lie to my teachers? Say, really make it serious. Not as a heavy trip on yourself, but what does this really feel like? Then, if, you, if, you're, if your intentions are strong, then you'll get this horrible, horrible feeling of not having fulfilled your promise. And if you take that horrible feeling and then you make an aditana, I'm going to really try to be aware of this thing that I always have to get into, right? That, so the next time the temptation comes up, you'll have much more strength. So now you're combining intention, right? With the hiriotapa, with the sense of conscience, if you're serious. So those two now make your intention even stronger because I don't, I want to give up this drinking and I don't want this horrible sense of self, self-hatred and, and the sense of shame and you know, all that stuff that can come up, right? And, and that's the sort of pattern you have to keep introducing until, until you, you, you're victorious over this. Now, that is not self-hatred, that's wisdom. That's seeing cause and effect. What would self-hatred do? Well, self-hatred, oh, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm terrible. That would create in the mind a depression which would want more durian. Because you just feel awful. And well, how do you get out of awfulness? Give me another drink. Right? If, it's, if it's an issue of, of the mind, if it's a social issue, that's much, much easier to deal with, right? Because then you can just say, I'm a teetotaler. And this is true of all addictions. They are, they're very powerful. And, and the way we get out of them, if, if we're not coming from some dysfunctional, deeper psychological damage, then it, it is this combination of aditana and hiriotapa that we work with. And it could be something as simple as just giving up your iPhone for 13 minutes. <laughs> That's an interesting addiction, isn't it? That's a very interesting addiction, this modern need to always be uh, looking at Line or Facebook or whatever you like to look at. Like just, you know, if you think about that, the mind going outside is the problem. The result of the mind is suffering. The mind, knowing the mind is the path. The result of the mind, knowing the mind is freedom from suffering. So this, the modern tendency to always go out into the objects of the screen is a, is a huge addiction. It's a huge addiction. And what could be more uh, far, what would be more, what could be more psychologically insidious, insidious, how else do you say that, damaging, than the mind always going outside. But it's not immoral to look at your iPhone. But in terms of being available to the unconditioned, what could damage it more than that? I mean, the, whoever invented these gadgets was psychologically devious. You think about it, like in, in 10 years, 
you now walk down the street and no one's looking at the street anymore, right? And there are car accidents, there are laws against not using it. So, um, as an addiction, that's a very interesting one. That's a very, very interesting one. So, like, how would you do that? How would you deal with that? Like, have some downtime? Well, you do it the same way. You know, you'd say to yourself, well, I'm only going to look at the iPhone from this time to that time, and I'm not going to look at it at from this time to that time. So I'm not going to look at it after, let's say, from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Two hours a day on a 24-hour day. Nah, it's easy, right? <laughs> so then you say, maybe you say to yourself, okay, between 8 and 10, because I work, I'll only look at my iPhone five times. I make, a, I make it actually a practice, an aditana, to look at the restlessness of, of tanha. Okay? So I say from 8 to 10, so I set the time, it's like the walking path. Yeah? And, and, uh, but my boss might phone me, so I have to be around my kids. I'll only look at it five times, and I'll, and I, and I'll answer the phone. How's that? That's easy, isn't it? Not a problem. <laughs> so after... 10 minutes, well, okay, I'll just look once, right? So you look once. But because you've made an aditana now, you realize, oh, I've only got four left, and there's still one hour and 50 minutes, right? So all of a sudden, you're more aware of tanha. You're more aware of the restlessness of the mind going outside. So now you hang on for 20 minutes. Wow, I'm gang mak, right? So now you've done a whole <laughs> half hour, and now you really just gorge, you know? And now, then, no, 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 wait a minute. I should set a time, too, because actually I could just watch for the whole two hours and it'll only be twice. <laughs> so then you realize, okay, I can only look at my iPhone, at my emails, and line, right? So you look at the second time. So let's say by... One hour passes now, you've looked at it three times. Now you're really aware of the desire to look at the iPhone. Now you see tanha, right? Because you've set up a kind of little laboratory of craving. Now you really see, wow, this is difficult. This is difficult. So then you give up the aditana and you just look at the phone. <laughs> That's what usually happens. That was a stupid aditana. I shouldn't have listened to him at all. But then you say, oh, wait a minute. And this is how you use uh, boundaries and aditanas to actually understand your mind. Huh? And, and, and those are very, very interesting experiments around issues which are, which are important to you. So for, for, for the, uh, that Sura Meriya precept, it's a very damaging precept because, like the Tibetans say, which is, you know, which is the precept that's just worst to break, and everyone thinks, oh, the first one, killing. I said, well, I know, it's actually the fifth one. You get drunk, uh, then you, uh, what do you do? You lie, you run around with your neighbor's wife, then your neighbor comes and you kill him. <laughs> so everything's gone. You're dead. <laughs> That's Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, so, but, I mean, the, the question is serious, and, and, uh, 
to to to, to if if you're gonna if you're gonna have a mind which is happy, you want to do things where you feel self-respect. And what's going to give you the least amount of self-respect is if you don't keep the precepts. You won't feel. And if you don't have self-respect, and you're not well within yourself, you just want more distractions, right? You, you won't be able to face that. And then when you have to stop, you have all these memories and you know, horrible kind of feelings because you haven't addressed that. So it's, 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 I don't, it's, is Thai culture a big drinking culture? Is it? Bangkok culture? Is it? A lot of drinking? Yeah? I don't know. I guess Canada is too. I don't know. Anyway, Canada, they've made marijuana legal now. So you walk through the streets and, oh, <laughs> men. We have a, we have a, in the town next to us, there's a huge billion-dollar factory now that, that makes marijuana products. Not that I go there. Based on the fact that Buddhism is not a belief system, is there any scientific discussion regarding what happens to our brains after years of practice? Yeah, there are, there are studies now in biofeedback where they're starting to understand the brainwave patterns and brainwave patterns which are, are uh, related to peaceful states of mind. So there's, there's, there's quite a bit of scientific evidence. I, I don't, I'm not read on it. I'm not well read on it all, but it's definitely um, there, is, there, there is a result. I, I think Lompo Semedo, quite a long time ago, did some biofeedback. Someone did a a, uh, what do you call that when they put the electrodes on your head? Anyway, you know. What do you call it? Electro, not not electroencephalograph. Uh, anyway. Huh? EEG, that's it. Did uh, some EEG work and, and the psychologist looked at it and said, Wow, you can do that. So somehow he could see that Lompau's mind was very empty. Huh? So there, you know, there is, there is, there is evidence of that. But uh, I'm not. One of our monks actually is interested in biofeedback, and he's actually he's, he's the engineer. So he's actually made himself uh, a rubber hat with. <laughs> he doesn't made it uh, with electrodes on it, and then he's trying to, with a psychologist, develop the data to understand what the brain can produce when it's meditating and then to give that biofeedback to meditators so that their mind responds more to the stimulus of calm and hence they train themselves into calm. Stay tuned, I don't know, I don't know how it's working. Maybe next retreat we'll all be sitting here with little, <laughs> little helmets. But no, it, it's, a, it's encouraging actually that these things are happening. Can you please explain how to do choiceless awareness? Um, well, any, obviously it's a paradox. To do choiceless awareness, you have to choose, so. <laughs> so there is a choice, right? Uh, but we were saying in one of the interviews that perhaps the most difficult practice is to do nothing. 
And when I, I asked Lompol, how would you define right effort now? This was in August. He said, no effort. And now you could say, well, I'm not making any effort, but usually you're just thinking. That's doing something, right? And then the very definition to do nothing implies someone making a choice to do nothing. Right? So what happens in meditation is the, the sense, well, first of all, there's just the dif difficulty of staying present for a few milliseconds. <laughs> the mind is just a wreck of, of, of history and projections. So there's that. So usually when we start, we do quite structured, you know, focused. And that's all very, very helpful. We kind of need that. And then as, I think as we become experienced and we live better lives, we live less distracted lives and, and, and so on and so forth, we know how to, we have the capacity to be more still, more and more naturally. And the, what, what you find is the need for techniques starts to fall away. And in fact, I think we all start to feel there's too much control. I think that's a natural kind of progression. And as that sense of control, you see, I don't really have to do that. You understand, like the way I've been trying to instruct awareness with the way things are, you're okay with thought. Thought doesn't blow you away anymore. Okay, so I'm all right with thought. Then what comes up is the very sense of the doer. You start to notice that the very doer is a kind of tension. There is doing and, the, and, and, and that me doing something. And that is around bhava and vibhava, right? And more and more you don't want to, uh, more and more you don't want to pick up objects. You're more interested in that which knows objects, the way I've been teaching. And as you become more and more interested in not picking up objects, you start to do things like knowing change rather than absorbing into the objects of change. Right? You, just, uh, you get a sense of, of non-grasping, of non-attachment. One of the experiences you have in meditation is the experience of emptiness, where the sense of the doer just falls away. You know, that's not uncommon. What's that? Huh? And so your intuition goes more to choiceless awareness, awareness of the way things are, rather than choosing objects to concentrate on. But you have to be sort of in shape. You know, it's like being in shape for that. And quite often that does come up in the latter part of a, of a, of a retreat. You know, in the beginning, you just... In the beginning of the retreat, the form carries you and you might do deliberate things. So in terms of developing choiceless awareness, um, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're doing nothing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but to do nothing is terribly, terribly difficult. Huh? So you're exploring, I would say, choiceless awareness. You're, you're kind of exploring the very need to do something, need to fix something, need to figure something out, you know? And it, it's okay, it's this way. So, um, receptive awareness. Um, all that language is pointing to choiceless awareness because what's important is the awareness rather than the objects of awareness. As long as the objects, 
but let, let's say that as long as the objects of awareness are primary, well, then you're going to be dealing with them, and sometimes they are. So let's say I can't, I'm, you know, I just something in my mind which just cannot forgive someone, right? I just cannot, you know, it, they just messed me up so bad. I'm, you know, I'm never going to, I'm never going to forgive them. Nope. May they drop dead. Everyone else, okay. May they be well and happy. But Uncle Louie, well, he got me drunk again. I'm not going to, you know, so, so sometimes, you know, there are, are issues which you need to do, you know, choiceless awareness not, is not really appropriate. So let's say, like, uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> has anyone got an Uncle Louie? No, okay. <laughs> I'm really, you know, stuck. I, I, I say this facetiously, but we do have, you know, people have heard us. And we have been injured, right? So, so I, I don't want to trivialize it, but I, I don't want to get too heavy. So let's say there is something like that, and you just, you just can't forgive. You're really stuck with it. Or you can't forgive yourself. You know, maybe like your mom died and you weren't available. And you just, you just kind of, oh, I should have done, I should have done more. So then we do very deliberate practices to deal with that. That's where choiceless awareness wouldn't work. So... There's a lovely practice of forgiveness. I was speaking to someone, right, uh, about forgiveness. And um, this, uh, this is in a book by uh, Sharon Salzberg. Sharon Salzberg wrote a really, she's a, a, a lay teacher in, in America. And, and she has a lovely book on metta bhavana, which I think is titled Loving Kindness. And in it, it gives some very, very nice exercises. So one of it is the exercise on, on forgiveness. So that one is you, you, you do maybe some metta bhavana or something, but then you sit and then you, you say to yourself, for anything that I've done to anyone that has been unkind, I ask for forgiveness. You just kind of put it out there and then wait. And, and quite often a memory comes up of someone that you've hurt. And then you, you get that memory, you say, please forgive me, right? Please forgive me, please forgive me, right? It comes up. And then you do that for a while. So, for anything that I've done to anyone which has been hurtful, please forgive me. And then you do it, for anything that has been done to me, I forgive you. So you bring that up. For anything that has been hurtful to me, I forgive you. No, I'm not. <laughs> and you, wow, look at that reaction. Whoa, that's pretty strong. Okay, and then you sit there with that. And then you can't do it maybe. But at least you see, oh, that's pretty powerful. So then you try it again. Maybe tomorrow. For anything that I've done to anyone, please forgive me. I say, oh, yeah, I've done stuff too, haven't I? Yeah, okay. So for anything that's been done to me, I forget. Yeah, but it was much worse. <laughs> and you have this struggle. But, but if you're sincere, if you're sincere and you're doing, you realize, I don't want to live in this resentment. It's just too painful and ugly to live in resentment. And you want to be free from that. And at some point you say, all right, I forgive you. But not much. <laughs> And you get better and better and better at it. And, and what it does, it makes conscious these very, these held things. You see, and, and, and that can be very liberating, where choiceless awareness, it wouldn't. 
And then the third one you do is for anything that I've done to myself, I forgive myself. It's a kind of different kind of a thing. Because sometimes we can just hate ourselves for things that we perceive we've done. So, I for, yeah, I forgive myself. No, I don't. Or whatever. And that, that makes conscious things which might be really affecting the way I perceive myself in terms of self-hatred or, or others. So you can make, make things conscious, right? You can do that. And, and, and then feel that. But, or, 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 so, so there is a place for technique. There is a place for method. But once you, your, your mind feels pretty stable, so on and so forth, then I think the attention goes to the very mind knowing the mind. The, you know, what is puru? And that's choiceless awareness, really, where you're looking at the very knowing itself, and then the mind goes silent, because you can't find that, right? It's an interesting exploration, and most meditators get there. And then, you know, you, you, get, you do, like, make no effort. You start to put that language in your practice. Make no effort. And then you see the subtlety of, like bhava and vibhava can be very, very subtle, and you see the subtlety of that. So in, in, Zen, in, in, in Zen practice, they call it shikantaza. So shikantaza is, is not choosing an object, right? And uh, like, in, like in, 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 I don't, I'm not trained in Zen, but in Zen they sit with their eyes open. Because if you sit with your eyes closed, it, it's much more productive of thought. If you sit with your eyes open, there's less production of thought. And then they sit against the wall, like in a, you've probably seen pictures, right? In a zendo, they'll all be sitting around the perimeter looking at the wall, right? And hallucinating on the wall, I think, <laughs> or something like that. And then it's like not choosing, just knowing, just knowing. Theravada uses much, much more technique. But as your mind becomes subtle, do, do observe the sense of the doer, me doing something, and see, well, that's an object too. And your mind even goes more and more silent. So it's a kind of place to experiment. So tomorrow is our uh, last full day, right? Um, so last full day is a perception. And a perception creates a mood. Right? With last full day as condition, there is a certain kind of mood. And that's a different mood than first day. You know, first full day is a different feeling. And it might be, oh great, meditation, oh God, meditation, or oh, would they have any nampik here? I don't know. <laughs> we had that. I did, I did a retreat in where was it, in, in New Zealand. And there was these three Thai ladies who had never done a retreat. So they, 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 bought, a, they bought a whole suitcase of Nam Pik and put it under their, <laughs> under their bed. <laughs> they were afraid there would be no chilies. Anyway, so, so this is dependent origination. Time is dependent originated, right? So how the feeling at the end of the retreat is different at the feeling at the beginning of retreat, and that's tamma. But what is it that is unchanging? So one of the meditations I asked you to, to, to play with is 
Listen to sound. Feel your body. What changes and what is unchanging. Do that because it's going to change. <laughs> so what will change is the environment will change and your task is to be the unchanging knowing of change. Easy, right? When, when, uh, when you live in this kind of environment, it is probably the best you can do as a human being in terms of kalyanamitta, in terms of precepts, in terms of generosity, in terms of beauty, in terms of dhamma practice. You know, this, you, this is called a peak experience, <laughs> as Lompa would say. And so it will change, and, and it'll probably change to something more coarse, at least. Yeah? How could it be otherwise? So if you think that peace is an environmental experience, then you'll suffer. But if peace is an inner attitude, then you'll adapt. And we mistake sometimes environmental peace for inner peace. So Lompo, just one last story from Lompo Cha, when you've probably heard this one, but he was, he was at the Hampstead Vihara in London in 1979, I guess. And that Vihara, we stayed there two years before we got Chithurst. And the shrine room was on the second floor, and it's an Edwardian building, and Edwardian buildings have 11-foot windows without, without double glazing. And the street that the Hampstead Vihara was on was called Haverstock Hill, and it was very, very noisy, lots of traffic, very, very noisy, buses and taxis, and, and across the road there was a pub, and on, uh, on the second floor of the pub, was uh, 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 an empty room that a rock band used to rent for, for uh, practice. So you'd have the sound of the buses and trucks, you'd have the drunks coming out of the pub, yelling at each other, and then you'd have the rock music in a large room which had open windows. So it was the noisiest possible kind of meditation room. So we're sitting there, and Lompa Cha is leading the meditation, and it is just so noisy that I'm embarrassed. My, my, my teacher's here, and this is... A <laughs> and we're sitting there, and Lompa, and then finish the meditation, and, and Lompa says, you think the noise is bothering you? He said, I suggest you stop going out there and bothering the noise. And that was such a good teaching. And he said, and you've heard probably this story many times, and he often say that, he said, noise is just doing what noise does. It's just sound. Your job is not to make it a problem. And so, you're, you're, you know, the sense experience you get when you walk through a busy city is, is, is coarse. Right? And, 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 and you come from a meditation retreat where you're very open. And that's the challenge of going from a, a, a refined and delicate and beautiful environment to a coarse environment. Now your heart's open, right? And, and yet, if you kind of remain open like this, looking around and so on, then you get really frazzled. So how can you remain 
centered and yet remain open. I don't know how to do it. That's why I live in the country, by the way. <laughs> but it is a challenge that, you know, you're very open and you're, in some sense you're really vulnerable. And, and we're trying to do that in meditation, become vulnerable so we can look at our fears and look at our biases and, and free our minds from that. But you can't do that in the city. You know, you have to somehow contain yourself. So the challenge is how can I not just go out to everything in a city environment? How can I do Indriya Sangwara? Indriya Sangwara is the collection, collectedness that is required in any life. So how do you do composure? I don't know how to do it, by the way. Well, I do. I mean, I go in Pindapa, don't I? Yeah, I know how to do it. How do you do composure in a city environment, right? Rather than complain about the city. You can complain about the city, but that's not going to help much. It's, the city's not going to change. <laughs> so how can I do composure in a city environment? Well, you'd probably look, you know, not be so... You, you, with the eyes, wow, look at this, look at that. You just kind of collect, uh, like, like with sight. Sight really, you know, you look at things, look at that, oh, that's shocking, and oh, that, like, well, two of those, and I, wow, look at her dress, and God, that, you know, so you're, you're, your mind is just operating, something fierce. So then your vision, your vision has to kind of, you know, contain your vision, don't look so strongly. Uh, can, can contain your senses uh, in the, you know, like in the way you're walking through. So you try to make city life your practice, obviously, right? Um, and make it a challenge rather than just a hassle. So when I when I came my first time, when I had to go from Wat Bapong to to Bangkok. Um, to get a visa, we had to do that. Now they can just stay up at Nunachat. But I just totally lost it in Bangkok. I was just gaga within half a day. <laughs> My senses were just overloaded because I didn't know how to contain, contain my senses. Now I know how to do that. I mean, you li if you live in a city, you know how to do that, otherwise you wouldn't survive. But see if you can make it a practice. How can I practice awareness with the busyness of Bangkok and stay composed? Interesting practice, right? And then, and then like, like, like the, the, the tendency to hold on to the meditative experiences you have now. Lompo Sumedho always says at the end of retreat, now just give everything up. All the peace, happiness, pity, sukha, insight, Wong. Let it all go. Because if you hold on a little bit, you're going to suffer, right? And then, and then metta bhavana, right? You could go to the city and, and resent it, or you could go to the city and say, may all beings be free from suffering, and try to come from that. Might be much better way to kind of do it, right? And these are ideals, I realize, they're ideals, but the intentions, the intentions are very powerful, they're very helpful. And don't hang out with Uncle Louie. <laughs> I'll leave that for your reflection.
Sa-tuna.